Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works, various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark roads, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. Today, I'm very lucky to have three esteemed guests, all returning visitors to the podcast, to have this roundtable discussion of perhaps McCarthy's most significant novel. Very few would argue with that. First will be our inaugural guest, the president of the Cormac McCarthy Society, Stephen Fry. Dr. Fry is professor and chair of English at California State University of Bakersfield, author of Understanding Cormac McCarthy from the University of South Carolina Press, editor of the Cambridge Companion and Cormac McCarthy, and Cambridge uh, University Press's Cormac McCarthy in Context. He has written numerous journal articles on Cormac McCarthy and other authors of the American Romanticist tradition. Additionally, is the author of the recently published novel, Dogwood Crossing. Stacey Peebles is rejoining us, and she is chair of the English program, director of film studies, and the Marlene David Grissom Professor of Humanities at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She is the author of Welcome to the Suck, narrating American soldiers' experience in Iraq, and Cormac McCarthy and Performance, Page, Stage, and Screen. Co-editor of the recently published volume, Approaches Teaching the Works, Cormac McCarthy. She's been editor of the Cormac McCarthy Journal since 2010. And Stacy was our, our guest who carried us through that first dive into Blood Meridian. So welcome back, Stacy. And last but not least is Rick Wallach, one of the founders of the Cormac McCarthy Society, recently retired after a number of years teaching English at University of Miami. He is senior editor of the Cormac McCarthy Society Casebook Series, editor of the two-volume collection of essays, Sacred Violence, as well as Myth, Legend, Dust, Critical Responses, Cormac McCarthy, co-editor of the Linnea Chapman King, the late James Welsh, from novel to film, No Country for Old Men. He's written widely and extensively on numerous topics in literature, film, media, and contemporary music, not least of which, of course, include his work on Cormac McCarthy. So the back of my mid-early 90s vintage American copy of Blood Meridian says this. By the author of, among other works, Sutcher and All the Pretty Horses, that shows you when the paperbacks are reissued. Blood Meridian is an epic novel of the violence and depravity that attended America's Western expansion, brilliantly subverting the conventions of the Western novel and mythology of the, quote, Wild West, end quote. Based on historical events that took place in the Texas-Mexico border in the 1850s, it traces the fortunes of the kid, a 14-year-old Tennessean who stumbles into a nightmarish world where Indians are being murdered and a market for their scouts is thriving. Now, at the time the novel came out, Karen James writes this in April of 18, 1985 in the New Yorker magazine. Blood Meridian comes at the reader like a slap in the face and a front that asks us to endure a vision of the Old West full of charred human skulls, blood-soaked scouts, a tree hung at the bodies of dead infants. But while Cormac McCarthy's fifth novel is hard to get through, it is harder to ignore. Any page of his work reveals his originality, a passionate voice given equally to ugliness and lyricism. Over the past 20 years, the brutality of his subjects may have kept readers away. The power of his writing has earned high critical repute. She goes on to say, this latest book is his most important, for it puts in perspective Faulknerian language and unprovoked violence running through the previous works, which were often viewed as exercises in styles or studies of evil. Blood Meridian makes it clear that all along, Mr. McCarthy has asked us to witness evil, not in order to understand it, but to affirm its inexplicable reality. His elaborate language invents a world hinged between the real and surreal, jolting us out of complacency. I think that New Yorker review is pretty solid writing for that stage in McCarthy 
responses by someone who's not really a McCarthyist or Cormacian as such. So it's, it's not a bad response compared to the normal, well, it's Faulkner, but it's not Faulkner, and it's this, but it's not that kind of reviews we saw. So starting off here, I think the first thing any of us would say is, has there ever been anything like Blood Meridian before in American Lit? And I think I'll aim that question at you, Steve, because I think you might have a response, and I'm not sure if we all agree with it or not. But has there ever been anything like it in well, no, American literature um, before? You know, <laughs> absolutely yeah. not. I mean, I, I think it's it's utterly <laughs> remarkable Good. in that context. Um, but of course, it, it you know, McCarthy said books are made out of books, and it has antecedents and allusions uh, that sort of embed it richly in an American tradition. It's recognizably American in that way. In terms of, of the review that, that you talked about, you know, uh, one of the things that's striking about the review is the idea that he's, he's difficult to ignore at the level of language. I think that the representation of violence, which we talk a lot about, is no more than we find in a lot of slasher films or any other sort of genre that people just embrace, you know, regularly. But what makes McCarthy a challenge in that context is the representation of violence through language that makes it jarring and entirely kind of unique. Yeah. When you think of the seventies as the age of the slasher movies and even, you know, from Texas chainsaw massacre up through the Halloween films and the Friday the 13th films, which go from being merely bad to (laughs) ridiculously stupid. um, It is all about violence and that, in that time period. And yet McCarthy's bringing it back to the reality in a way those don't. Of course, Steve, I thought you might go into Melville a little bit, not in terms of violence, but just in terms of, you know, a book. Well, that's what I meant by illusions and so on. Right. Uh, And, you know, the books that, you know, Blood Meridian is made out of a lot of books, but at at the center of that is Moby Dick, right? So the judge is seven feet tall. He's bald and cold white. He's ubiquitous. He's seen in various places. He's a bloody old hoodwinker. uh, And the white whale is a white whale. It's seen all over the place. Uh, The illusion's very explicit. And in the quarterdeck chapter to Moby Dick, Ahab is talking to Starbuck, right? And he says that what the whale represents to him is this pasteboard mass that he must strike through to get at whatever might be behind. And I think what's remarkable about, about uh, the Melville connection is that we might argue that the judge is what's actually behind the pasteboard mask. But then again, he's a bloody old hoodwinker. So is he yet again another man? So yeah, certainly that's the, the Moby Dick is, is all over this novel, no question about it. So the thing that stands out to readers always with Moby Dick is that you start off thinking it's Ishmael's adventure story and not too far into it. He takes a back seat a little bit to his newfound companion, Queequeg, the South Seas tattooed native who uh, indigent person, I should say, who is such a superior uh, whaler and harpoonist. And then they all take a back seat for the bulk of the novel to Ahab. And so do you see this book, any any of the three of you, I'll ask, moving in similar directions? Because I want to ask a counterpoint with this in a minute, Stacey, but do you see it going in the same direction or what do you think? Well, yeah, <laughs> I think it goes the other way, but <laughs> let, Rick, let Rick chime in. Rick, what do you think? I don't think that the judge is all that much like Ahab. I think he's far more rational than Ahab. Ahab is a man in the grip of, of an eventual obsession. And uh, the judge goes about everything very coolly and calculatedly. I don't think that uh, 
the one thing that the judge seems to do obsessively is molest and kill children. But he does that quietly in a round back. Whenever Ahab's obsession rises right. to the surface, you get a speech. And the judge's speeches, again, as I said, are all very calculated. And yeah. if, if you look at the fabric of the novel, you know, beginning to end, all of that calculation is aimed toward the destruction of his gang votaries that he's gathered around him. You know, everything that he does, everything that he says, is kind of channeling the other gang members towards their destruction. And he knows exactly what he's doing, too. I mean, the, the, you know, it, there's no question that any of this is incidental. That he's put there to bring these people, you know, to a reckoning of sorts. Now, I don't believe that it's a moral reckoning, but it's a reckoning according to ah. the judge's particular ideology and aesthetic, if you will. Right. And, and to clarify Steve's position, I don't think he sees... Holden as Ahab, he sees Holden. Yeah, exactly. I, I would agree with At one that. point in time, we were talking about this before, and uh, and you did make the point though that what is remarkable about or what comparable about the judge to Ahab is his rhetorical effect, uh, his speechifying. I think was the word that you used. So that's a comparison right. I think can be made. But otherwise, I agree completely with Rick. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. And where I was going, of course, was does the kid move away from being, and you brought this up before, Steve, our kind of center of gravity in the novel, to it being really the judge until the scene, of course, after the kid has a chance to shoot him out in the desert and disappoints the priest and many of us by not doing so at which point the kid kind of is back in real command of the story again. So what do you, what do you think, Stacey? This is where we, where I was setting you up earlier. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, that's, that's always been the way I've read the novel. And I talked about that last time is the kid, the kid is the real center, the one you're supposed to see. I've always thought, yeah, you know, an opening sentence of three words, just like Moby Dick, Ishmael, the kid. I mean, these are the ones, they might not be the flashiest characters, but they're the ones that you're supposed to, maybe think the most deeply about, about um, maybe consider, you know, in the most ways, you know, I was thinking about Rick's point and it does strike me, you know, thinking about, you know, this compared to Moby Dick, and this is a slightly different point, but this does seem to be a book that's less obviously about a sort of classical reason versus passion sort of tension, huh. you know, the way that maybe, maybe Moby Dick can be read in some sense. I mean, the back of my, you know, my ancient nineties <laughs> blood, blood reading copy <laughs> Uh, makes reference to the Iliad, the Inferno, Hieronymus Bosch, right? So it's not just an American tradition, even though the, the main text of the back of the book sets it in the context of America and the West, right? And the Western genre. But, and you can certainly talk a lot about Melville, but you can talk about a much, much broader, deeper tradition, right? Literary tradition. Mm -hmm. And one of the you know, hallmarks of the Western tradition, at least, is always you know, how, how much does reason govern us? How much does passion? How much should it and maybe that's part of the kid's struggle, but it's not, it doesn't seem to me it's framed that way. 
certainly not as much as something like All the Pretty Horses, maybe, or even Child of God. Right. Whatever the kid is wrestling with, neither he nor the author is, you know, putting it in those terms. Slightly different terms, perhaps, but. Yeah, there is a kind of Dostoevskyan distance between the kid and the reader and the kid and implied author that you don't get in in All the Pretty Horses, which I think is a more standard narrative approach. It's limited omniscient through John Grady's point of view. And there's a little more intimacy between the reader and John Grady. Uh, not a huge amount. I mean, that is one of the things people who don't like McCarthy will talk about. But it is there is still more, you're, you're more in the hip pocket with John Grady than you ever are with right. the kid, not only because of their kind of moral stances, it's a lot easier to root for John Grady and a lot easier to feel like you're on his team uh, in many ways than the kid, especially. But at the same time, there does it, maybe it is just a, the level of discourse and language are such that it interferes with the kind of reading that most of us started doing at 13 and 14, where it's about identifying with the character and getting caught up in their story more than the actual ideas and themes themselves, which is a kind of higher level of discourse that we're called to do in very complicated text. Well, it makes it more of a challenge to read. And that's why, you know, Lydia Cooper wrote such a great book about that narrative and morality. Like, how do you parse right. out how do you parse out the way these things are working when um, it's much less obvious than in a more conventional, a more conventionally structured narrative? And that would be uh, no more right. heroes. Right. So Rick, what do you think about talking about heroes, heroism, the kind of myths of the West and the myths of manifest destiny and Western settlement? Tell me what you think of how Mexico and various uh, indigenous tribes, Native American tribes are rendered in the novel. So we have the Comanche, the Apache, Aquis, Yumas, probably others if I really went through it. That's just off the top of my head. Does anything occur to you particularly? Or is there a common thread or theme or what do you think? About well, that? I think McCarthy put himself behind uh, the, the uh, expansionist or exceptionalist ideology of American expansion and looks over its shoulder at Mexicans and Native Americans. You know, I, th I think Captain White probably gives the definitive description of Mexicans, uh, you know, a degenerate race who can't govern themselves. And when people can't govern themselves, what happens, kid? Right. Those who can govern step in and govern for them. Uh, that was the gist of the American view of Mexico in, in the 1850s, uh, late 1840s, right. 1850s. I mean, the Mexican War was... Uh, you know, it was like the Gulf of Tonkin. It was a trumped up war. You know, it was a, uh, a war that was justified by provoking Mexican self-defense and then claiming, calling that aggression and going in. <laughs> I'm trying to remember where it was that I read that one of the um, one of the American generals might have even been Taylor, who said, yeah, we 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 poked the Mexicans. You know, we, we invited this attack so that we could say we'd right. been attacked. So there's that. Now, as for Native Americans, well, that's, that's a whole other level of the same problem. These are not humans. You know, these are um, uh, organic entities inconveniently parked under receipts. Uh, and they need to be, you know, peeled. These receipts need to be peeled off of them and, and cashed in. You know, they are commodities, really. They may be very nasty and vicious commodities, but this is... And that's how the scalps are referred to in yeah, the novels as is receipts. This what I'll call yeah. larval American capitalism, you know, pupating you know, uh, before uh, her uh, eyes. Scott, can I uh, just just talk a bit to to what uh, 
what Rick just said about, about they're not human. I, I think that one of the things too, that um, there's a couple of different ways to dehumanize. And uh, one is to, to do as, as Rick is suggesting, that is to, to represent them or see them as animals, something subhuman. There's also a way of idealizing that is very, very right. typical of Native Americans, right? And S.C. Grin wrote a, wrote, a, wrote a great book called Empire of the Summer Moon about the Comanches, right? And it was- Yes. Yeah, and it's ultimately yeah, a very sympathetic book, book um, as he tells of their history. But at the same time, there uh, he points out that particularly sort of the Hollywood myth of the Native American, that, that, that myth that's derived from this notion of the noble savage, is inaccurate, right? That the Comanches were pretty darn brutish, as were the Apaches and others. Well, I think McCarthy does yeah. is humanize them in from both directions. One, they are richly embodied humans, but they're not all that distinct from, from other humans in their propensity to brutality and greed and avarice and all of those things. So I, I think that that's, that's one of the things he accomplishes by not romanticizing, by not idealizing them. And I don't know of a time, but I'm sure right. that someone has taken McCarthy to task for his representation of Native Americans, which I think would be unfair on those, those grounds. Well, and I think you could argue that, you know, you had the two myths in Hollywood, and we might think mm -hmm. of one as a 1930s, mm -hmm. the kind of murdering, no good, you know, uh, redskin kind of myth mm -hmm. that they're all horrible and evil, and they're just the enemy, and they'll always come out and do horrible things. And the settlers' women always have to keep a bullet mm -hmm. in the gun to kill themselves so they don't be uh, raped horribly and all that. And the Cohen brothers recently set that up in a really weird way, and the Netflix film they did not too long ago. Then the other mm. one is our kind of 60s little big man approach where, like you're saying, it's very romanticizing them from a nobility and super environmentalist. And of course, we now you know realize that Plains Indians tribes would kill herds of buffalo to get enough to eat. It wasn't quite as environmentally friendly as we think. It's just the level of, of harm they did is so insignificant compared to the harm that the white settlers did with buffalo hunting and slaughtering millions for the hides and the market in Europe for the hides for buffalo skin robes and hats and, and so on that it, they just pale in comparison. But, it, but it, I do think this is one of McCarthy's strengths. He refuses to dehumanize up or down in a way. He, he, he will not set you up as some kind of superhero or superhuman kind of perfect creature that we don't really believe in. But at the same time, no one, again, as I say, comes off looking really good in this. Even uh, I would say uh, my biggest sympathy are for the non-warriors, the children and old people and the women of the villages who are harmed by the Mexican government and harmed by the filibuster and harmed by whatever Glanton's gang is later are harmed by the marauding Apaches or Comanches. They're just always people caught in the middle by the people who can do violence. Uh, and that almost seems to be one of the ways he constructs differences here or empowerment is either you're, you're, or you're practicing violence or you're having it practiced upon you. Seems to be one of the ways he well, goes there was with always, it. There were always uh, wars between Native American nations. Uh, you know, before the white man ever came here, uh, you know, there were, there were enormous wars. Uh, so, it's not something that, that we, we uh, Euro-Americans brought <laughs> to them. We just practiced it in a, in a particularly more advanced, you know, technologically advanced way. Well, kind of scorched earth all or nothing. Yeah. It wasn't fight for a season and then relent. It was go and go and go until there's yeah. no one left. I mean, right? they were, if you want to go back far enough, uh, the, the wars between the uh, Kano people who became the Aztecs, 
and uh, the other, you know, Mesoamerican tribes. Right, the pre-Mayans. Pre-Mayans, Mayans, Toltecs, uh, and then the Tenoch. Uh, I mean, Cortez doesn't get anywhere without the help of a couple of other Mesoamerican tribes who hated the Aztecs. So, I mean, it, it wasn't like a couple dozen Spaniards marching on Tenochtitlan. It was a couple dozen Spaniards leading thousands of other, you know, uh, native Mexicans uh, against Arab. Well, and it's, it's just where the epigraph comes in about the 300,000 year old yeah, skull. I think, yeah, absolutely. That was found, which if that, I don't know, you know, where archaeology and paleontology were in 1983, four and five are very different where they are now. I don't know if we'd still say that it was a human skull that's that old, but we do know that it shows evidence of having been scalped, whether it's a progenitors to the homo sapiens or whoever. Well, as a, as a, as a once upon a time would be paleontologist, <laughs> I can assure you that as far back as the 1960s, they were looking at fossils with microscopes. So, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it was pretty far along. You know, Stacy and Frederick Douglass, Narrative Life of American Slave by Frederick Douglass, he has a really interesting point about dehumanization where he says the slave owners are trying to practice dehumanization with their slaves, but the ones they're dehumanizing are mm-hmm. themselves. So he tells about the woman who when he first goes to live with that family, he's seven years old. He's going to be the caretaker of their younger son. That at first she starts teaching him his ABCs and giving him food and good clothes. And her husband, who's been raised around slavery and is a bigger participant as a slave owner than she has been, says, no, you can't do that. Don't teach him to read and write. Don't give him an inch. He'll take a mile. And he says, slavery was far more injurious to her than it does to me. Is there any of that going on in Blood Meridian where he's actually saying, look how these evil people have done. They're really doing it to themselves, you think? Or I, I know this wasn't on any kind of outline. I'm just, it occurred to me as we started using that term. Oh, I think that might be a little too, a little too easy. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That almost sounds, uh, I mean, it's possible that could be, you know, something uh-huh. working in there. Although, you know, to reduce it right to a line like that sounds a bit preachy, but um but I do think, I mean, the, the reviews you quoted from the back of the book, what everybody you know has to contend with with a novel is the level, like Steve said earlier, is the level of violence. Um, the other name that's on the back of my uh, 90s edition is Peckinpah. Ah. But I think, you know, Steve's kind of right that the visual language is different from the textual one, um, even though they're working in the same genre. And yeah, you've got to find you know, the natural, I think, reaction to the novel is to find some way to explain it to yourself, right? Yeah. Uh, my mother explained it, I remember, <laughs> way back in the day by saying, well, this is historical, so this is based on real things that happened, and therefore it's okay. <laughs> you know, I think Sepich, <laughs> I think John Sepich uh, says something like the same thing, like, well, if that's not true, it's just the product of somebody's grotesque imagination, and I'm not sure about that. You know, that seems a little problematic. But so, but right. Okay. So what line do you want to take? Um, certainly the violence, yeah. as we've been saying, doesn't proceed along narrative lines that are familiar in terms of genre, you know, genre structures or literary history even. Um, it just overflows, right? I mean, you've got that Comanche attack on page, what, about 50? Reads like the climax of any other narrative. Yeah. And it's 50 pages in, you know, really long book. Yeah. So how do you want, I mean, it's like the problem of evil almost, right? So how do you want to explain it to yourself? Maybe we all come to different conclusions, but at some point that does seem to have been on at some level McCarthy's project. I mean, if you're not looking at this stuff, you're not really considering the place of the human in the world. 
So, okay, you know, what, what do you want to do with it? And this is a particularly difficult <laughs> case study. I mean, you know, Lester Ballard and Child of God is maybe something like the same thing, very different scale, very different affect, very different book. Right. And of course, The Road is maybe another one. Um, and maybe you come yeah. to different conclusions about all three of those, but it's, uh, it does seem like that is the primal desire of the reader with the book when you finish it as, okay, what do I think about that? How do I explain that to myself and others? Because of the level of language, as Steve mentioned earlier, because of the literary illusions, as we've all talked about, because of the history, because of the genre, because of the American context, uh, the, you know, the context of the Western tradition you know, as a whole, and you know, non-Western traditions too, really. I know Rick has argued before, right? So, so what's the answer? And I don't think it's clear. I, but neither right. do I think that that's because there isn't one. Right. When you say Western tradition, I keep thinking of capital W, <laughs> as in you know, starting with right. The Greeks right. That's what I, when I say Western era. tradition as opposed to Western genre. Right. That's what I mean. And right. then Western right. genre, of course, which is you know, you know Marshall Dillon <laughs> and uh, John Ford films and uh, Max Brand novels, hmm. things like that. So, uh, but it's useful to make those distinctions as well. It's interesting to note that the original Marshall Dillon, who's a radio character, was uh, psychotic. He was uh. brutal and violent himself, and they toned him down for television. Hmm. Uh, just as as Miss Kitty was a whore <laughs> in the in the radio yeah. version, and uh, yeah. you know, or is it the original writer of Gunsmoke, whose name I cannot remember, unfortunately, said, "Well, let's just say she wasn't selling candy bars," <laughs> you know, and that was that became the. Uh, separate bed, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, a gun smoke that, uh, that we got on TV, hmm. but, but look at the origins of the character. Yeah. The original Matt yeah. Dillon is played by William Conrad in voice who would go on to be canon yeah. as hmm. a, uh, early seventies detective series and a very different figure striding across the dusty streets of Dodge <laughs> city than, uh, James Arnett's all six foot six of him or whatever he was. Can I sort of concur with Stacy uh, in terms of uh, the question you asked earlier about sort of the moral sort of dimensions of, of the Absolutely. novel? Absolutely. I think that, that whenever we engage in an act of reading, right, we're going to ask ourselves a question. And that question is, do I want to live in this world, both the world of the novel and the world that we actually are living in, right? I mean, McCarthy drives us to that question. Do I really huh. ultimately want to live here? and be a part of, of, of the world that I've been thrust into. And um, I think in this novel particularly, but elsewhere as well, what, what McCarthy's sort of suggesting is, look, if you're going to answer that question honestly, right, you can't answer it in the sentimental context of a backyard party with Uncle Billy and the potato salad and nice beer, right? You can't do that. You have to confront <laughs> something as, as brutish and ugly as what McCarthy asks us to confront in this novel. And then you can ask yourself that question. And e each of us may answer it in different ways at different moments in our life in different moods, right? And that's where I think Stacy is right. There, there, there probably is an answer. It might be a very individual answer, but there is an answer, but it is, it's not universal by any means.
Stacy started to go in this direction a minute ago, and to follow up on it, when we think about a historical novel, I was in an independent bookstore in Greenville, South Carolina this past week, a nice bookstore, but they had a little section called the historical novel. And I was looking at it and I'm thinking, well, there are a lot of books in this section that I would not put in a historical novel section. And there are a lot of historical novels that are not in there. Uh, and it struck me as odd. And it occurred to me there are certain kind of fads and movements in, let's call it book group, readers group fiction that are um, are being kind of played up here, you know, so World War II novels about home front people and so on. And do you guys distinguish between a book we might call a historical novel versus one we might call a novel with a historical setting? And what would that distinction be if you do? Well, the distinction that John Seppich, I think, makes, if I'm remembering and reading him right, is a historical novel is one where the history is familiar, like Gone with the Wind. You know, oh, Civil War. I know about that. I know about this battle, you know, that engagement. But a novel like Blood Meridian, which is very much using history as a backdrop, but it's unfamiliar history. You know, nobody knows this stuff. You're not going to pick up Blood Meridian as a totally naive reader and say, oh, yeah, (laughs) I remember these guys. You know, Uh, that's not where the pleasure comes from in the way that it might. Trying to think of what are some other good examples of what we might call historical novels. I mean, Gone with the Wind is always my go to. Now, that is a story set against the backdrop of things, of, of you know, things and events, people and places that you recognize. What are some other ones? Well, I mean, you know, Stacey, the tradition goes all the way back to Walter Scott. And I think he's he's working in that context. And yeah. and there's two ways. I, I yeah. love Savage's uh, definition because I think it, it's much more nuanced. But strictly, we would say that a historical novel in the most narrow sense is a novel that is set in a time remote from the author's own. But but more particularly, you know, George Decker talks about this in a book called The, the American Historical Novel, and that is, he talks about the Waverly model uh, that comes out of, of Scott and the idea that yeah. really what a historical novel is doing is pitting the forces of progress and reaction against one another. Uh, and I think that the first definition that I just mm. articulated, mm. which is this idea that uh, that it's set in a time remote from the author's own, is I mean, Blood Marine is clearly a historical novel. But in the sense that he's pitting the forces of progress and reaction against one another, I would sort of question that because I would say McCarthy is, is really scrutinizing even the possibility of a genuine progress. Uh, and so... Mm. Yeah. Right. You can almost yeah. argue he's at a third level of sophistication where if you're not mm. reading it, Carefully enough, you might think that's what he's doing, but he's actually right. challenging that humanity can make progress. Although, although I tend to fall on the Chip Arnold side of there's there's a little more humanity and a little more finding the the small thread of gold in the great dross of mm. darkness that, that maybe we think. Although not, you certainly have to dig for it very uh, deeply in this context as well. And so often historical novels, the, the main goal is simply, I think, to give us a more adventurous setting. We always mm-hmm. live with the notion this is a boring time. And so you set it back when things are more interesting and exciting. Right. And in order to have the same reason we have science fiction to create a historical sense in the future. Well, and the, the entire Western genre is nostalgic, right, from its inception. Yes. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's not nostalgic in terms of looking back and saying, boy, things sure were better back then, but they're, boy, they sure were more exciting back then. Right. I remember my brother, when we were little kids one time, said, I wish there was a war we could go to because we'd been watching some TV show movie. And I just, Mm -hmm. I was just old enough and cynical enough. I said to him, Are you crazy? (laughs) You get, you know, I'd do okay, but you get shot and killed because I'm watching. You can't get through dinner without getting hit. (laughs) Just that kind of reaction to thing, which I think, 
McCarthy's always challenging, right? And I, he seems to be reaching for something mm-hmm. universal, which maybe the historical setting helps us, but also allows him to make commentary on, again, their American mm-hmm. myths right. as well right. of, of Western settlement and Western, lowercase Western, uh, American Western settlement, American Western development, and also maybe the big mm-hmm. ones as well. So, so Rick, tell us why understanding Gnosticism helps us better understand the novel. Oh, boy. I wish I had Petra here. <laughs> I, th- I think that, boy, it, that's a complicated question because there is no one monolithic Gnosticism. You know, uh, there, are, there are schools of Gnosticism that are almost diametrically opposed to each other, you know, ideologically, metaphysically, you name it. But the main thing in Blood Meridian is that the judge, to me at least, uh, has a lot of the Gnostic archon about him. You know, it's almost like he's, he's, he's the great nemesis. You know, he's been sent to Earth or he is manifested on Earth for the uh, unique. Why don't we pause for a second? And so our, we're, we're pointed in that direction by the epigraph at the beginning from Jacob Boehm, if I'm saying his name right. It is not to be thought the life of darkness is sunk in misery and lost as if in sorrowing. There is no sorrowing, for sorrow is a thing that is swallowed up in death, and death and dying are the very life of darkness. Now, he's a philosopher who's engaged in discussing Gnosticism, right? So what is his approach, Rick, if you would? And then just, if you would, define for us Demiurge and Archons and things like that for people who don't really have much exposure okay, to this. Okay, well, uh, Archons are, um, to put it bluntly, they're evil spirits on a grand scale, Okay. They are uh, entropic at best. Okay. They, uh, they are very different from the classic Renaissance and medieval Christian theodicy that evil is the absence of God or, ex- or exists in the absence of God. It, in Gnosticism, evil has agency of its own. Uh, it doesn't exist in the absence of anything. It is a, 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 a served force you know, on its own with the dark side. <laughs> Uh, you know, when you think about it, one of the things that I that I loved about Star Wars, and that, in fact, I, I remember that Joseph Campbell, whom I was working for at the time that Star Wars came out, loved about Star Wars, uh, is that he saw the dark side as a, a wonderful expression of the, of the Gnostic Archon. It, yeah, that's exactly what it is, the dark side. Uh, but in, in a lot of schools of Gnosticism, uh, reality is the dark side. And uh, the good, you know, is uh, a little inkling we get, <laughs> a little twinkle in the darkness. And by the way, that's also very true in McCarthy in general. You know, there are always these little acts of goodness, acts of gentleness. Uh, the Indians who feed the starving kid, the mashed grasshoppers, uh, you know, right. things like that. The, uh, the stopping to help the Mexicans fix the tire on their truck, uh, you know, whatever it is. There's a very frail vision of love and goodness that sort of, it, it stands opposed to that engulfing, encompassing darkness, but it's no guarantee. <laughs> uh, you know, it has no guarantee of success, no guarantee of perpetuating itself. And uh, even the kid, if we find him at the end of Blood Meridian, uh, kind of on the cusp of becoming a moral being, winds up getting, uh, to be generous, torn to shreds in an outhouse. Uh, you know, it's... It, uh, I know Peter Joseph thinks that the judge ate him, or at least partially ate him. Uh, bless Peter, but I don't think it goes that far. Uh, but anyway, uh, it, it's Gnosticism is the philosophy of darkness, you know, and uh, that definitely prevails in the ethos of most McCarthy narratives. 
and the judge is, a, I think, to me, uh, a classic Zoroastrian archon, you know, and that is here to sow chaos. Let me just add very quickly uh, that the very interesting um, movie, and I don't remember if it was a movie movie or a major TV movie that I once saw called The Bermuda Triangle. And in that, basically, it's the people on a yacht and they pick up a castaway uh, who uh, systematically works to set them against each other, ones that have kill each other. Then he throws himself overboard again, and he's floating in the water again, waiting for the next yacht to pick him up. Okay? He's a satanic figure. He's an archon, you know. And the judge, likewise, uh, is a satanic figure and an archon simultaneously. Okay. And so as an archon, then he comes, and the whole notion is that God is not present, right? In the Gnostic reality, there, there might be a creator figure called the Demiurge, who's a kind of pseudo-God left behind to have the management of things? Yeah, uh, there's a, that, that conversation where the judge said, uh, if he is not here by his own will, then he must be here by the will of another. And uh, the kid says, well, I guess you'll tell us who that is. And the judge replies, oh, I know him well. Uh, huh. uh, the judge periodically in, in Blood Meridian, yeah, the, the, the judge says things that indicates that he's kind of on a first name basis, you know, first, you know, friendly basis, familiar basis, at least with God, kind of like uh, Mephistopheles in, in Faust, you know. And of course, there isn't a, a strong Mephistophelian streak in the judge. Uh, that bloody hoodwinker is very Mephistophelian. Right. But uh, there's another another scene there where uh, I think it's Dave Brown says, God don't lie. And the judge says, no, he does not. And he picks up a rock and he says, and these are his words. So it's like, yeah, oh, I, yeah, me and God were old buddies, you know. Well, as we go on with the judge and uh, Stacy and Steve, please chime in. What about that notion of being a suzerain and having ultimate free will, refusing to bow his head? I mean, there's a little bit of the Miltonic Satan, right? Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven going on. But how else do you guys see that? I mean, how does. Is there something here between about the judge and free will that coexist together? I mean, is, do you have to have one to have the other kind of thing? Or what, what do you guys think? It depends on if you would mean free will or power. Okay. Because they're different questions, at least to me. And I think you could probably do a lot. I mean, God knows. You could do a lot with everything in the book, which is one of the reasons we love it so much. And you could do a lot with free will. But right. Particularly in the context that I guess we've been talking about this in, I tend to be interested in power, right? Uh, and the judge basically saying you exert power or you don't exist. Right. That is the, you know, that's the Manichaean system uh, that he operates in. And you exert it over everything indiscriminately almost, um, including like artifacts, animals, <laughs> your immediate environment, you know, whatever that might be. Is that the same as free will? I don't think so. I think free will would be a different question. Free will is not the same thing as saying, can I do whatever I want to, to, to anything right. and anyone I want? That's, that's a question about power. Maybe it depends on the context you're putting free will right. in. If it's a more specifically like theological context, as we've been kind of talking about with Gnosticism, then that might be a to different both, question. Uh, Stacey's and Rick's point, I think one of the things about the Gnostic, the, the idea of the suzerain, he, it, it's almost, it could be seen as a sort of rough stand-in for this, this idea of the demiurge. And the, the, the thing about right. it that I think is so descriptively valuable about Gnosticism in the novel, 
Not that it, it constitutes McCarthy's worldview, but it has a descriptive power in that it mitigates against the nihilism because, because you have a world in ah. this Gnostic worldview that is defined by violence and destructiveness and brutality and all of these things that, that the Gnostics observe. But there is Gnosis, right? There is that light. There is the good outside of that world, right? And uh, which we arguably see glimmers of in, in the novel. So in, if, if we look at the, the, the novel as, as you know, Darty did and Diane Luce and, and others from a Gnostic perspective, then what we're seeing is not so much this, this world that is defined by, by a meaningless violence, but a world that is defined by uh, or, or governed by this demiurge who essentially shields us or blocks us from that, from that, that potential good, that gnosis. Well, as we think about power, we're particularly talking about the power here of, of violence and warfare, right? So that brings us, oh. Stacy, to like his, the lines where the judge is one of their weird campfire discussions. Can you imagine this guy being your scoutmaster, <laughs> by the way, and saying, after we talk about nuts, we shall talk about the dispensation <laughs> of your souls for your soul may be forfeit. Should you- and hey, watch this <laughs> trick but, I can do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the judge says, hold my beer, clear out for the territories. (laughs) You know, war is the ultimate game because war is at last a forcing of the unity of existence. War is God. And when he says, you know, people say there is no such thing as war, it is where he says, war endures as well as men what they think of stone. War was always here before man was. War waited for him. Mm. And I guess that, that idea that we force through power our point of view on others and they have to adapt it. Right. And well, and you've got me kind of thinking about it. I mean, since I, you know, I read this book as the opposition of the kid to the judge um, and their difference. But if the judge is defined by those statements and his belief in what we're calling, I guess, in this context, power, right, you know, absolute power and the overwhelming darkness of the world, then maybe the kid is kind of representative of a kind of free will, because if that's the system, these, you know, terrain so wild and barbarous, if that's the system that you are born and born into and, you know, you, you knew nothing else. And yet, again, this is my reading, not everybody's. He does at the mm. end seem to choose something different. Maybe that is a kind huh. of radical depiction of free will, right? The, the right. ability to make a choice that nothing in your surroundings mm. would have suggested was possible. Is it useful to think of the judge? I mean, I- McCarthy certainly invites some of this, right? Is a um, Miltonic Satan character in places? Is it useful to think of him as a Promethean character in places? I think, as we've all said, there are places where McCarthy invites you to do that, whether it's talking about how he fiddles and the little the little feet dancing at the end. And of course, you have to ask yourself, what year does the devil went down to Georgia come out <laughs> with all that fiddle stuff? And I know you guys weren't going to go there, but I had to do it to you. <laughs> Is it useful to think of either of those, you know, the Miltonic notion of Satan and of Prometheus and, he, and Milton is the one who maybe first connects those two mm. for us. And, and just on the one hand, we have Satan's rebels, Satan's one who won't bow down and still a force of darkness. Milton does not humanize him or make him good or anything. Or, I mean, is there value to looking at that when we consider the judge? I mean, he's clearly supernatural, right? There's no way you can read the book and not read that there's more to the judge than just being a guy. You think no, I, don't, so I don't think you have to. <laughs> I mean, the evidence is a bit circumspect yeah. that way. I mean, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't ever do anything on screen. <laughs> no, it's not a fantasy novel where 
you know, there's someone pulls out a magical right. sword that will allow you to deal <laughs> right. with the, the judge. Yeah, I, if I would get to call the judge anything in that sense, yeah. I would use the word uncanny. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a better expression because if you'll notice, McCarthy very cannily leads mm-hmm. an alternate interpretation. For example, right. the, the bit at the, the fight the uh, around the campfire with the magic coin coming back, and someone says, "Well, it must have been on a horsehair lead or something." Uh, you pull it back. There's always an alternative uh, suggested right. or left open, and that's pretty maddening. <laughs> but well, it's the old it's the old tradition, right? Yeah. So, young Goodman Brown, you know. Faith, look up to heaven and resist the wicked one, the Puritan says as they're led down to the satanic altar at the end of that story. And there's a flash and then he awakens. And was it all a dream or was it all real? It didn't matter because either way he lost his faith. It's a very allegorical story. And right. you never really know if it's supposed to have really happened or all been in his head. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, Goodman and, Brown really aggravates me. I really wish more had <laughs> you know, written it. <laughs> right. I think uh, as, as, an old right. as an old Gothicist, I'd call the judge preternatural, right? Yeah. So he's right there in the middle. Oh, you you, you can't know entirely. And, and Goodman Brown is uh, is a good good comparison, and that whole ambiguous Gothic, you know, kind of kind of mechanism where you don't know if the supernatural is operating, you know, or not. And uh, and that's that's I guess how I see it. Well. And the distinction, of course, in the Gothic is the goal is in mm-hmm. Gothic romanticism as opposed to Gothic horror. So if we yeah. say that Dracula, where yeah. we know for a fact that guy's a vampire by the end <laughs> of the book, and you're kind of yeah. thinking, how stupid are they that it takes them so long to really twig to the fact in the book? The goal of that novel yeah. is to entertain yeah. and titillate through scaring you and exciting you. So it's like a roller coaster or or a scary if for someone who's actually yeah. entertained by Halloween Part Five. Yeah, uh, one of those was filmed in Charleston, by the way, but I haven't watched it. And on the other hand, the other version, what you see in Hawthorne and some Poe, the better Poe, and other practitioners of that early American right. Gothic, is the goal is to make you think. Mm-hmm. And to make you consider. And so very often you don't, you, you know, Fallout House of Usher, is anything real going on with the house? Is it actually bringing life to the comatose body of Madeline Usher? Or is it just she awakens and somehow has this supernatural strength from adrenaline or something? We don't really know. The implication seems very clear, but you don't know for sure. And so he does leave it. And it's, it's like every children's Christmas special. Was that guy really Santa Claus or was he just some guy? <laughs> You never really know. It's not going to commit one way or the other. So there is something I think going on in McCarthy that's interesting. I'm sure you guys have noticed this before, and this isn't the only place he does it. But it's profound here, and it kind of makes a comeback again in The Crossing. In this novel, we six times visit a ruined church, a church that is more or less out of business or decrepit or broken. And I have not counted how many times it shows up in The Crossing. I bet it's more than six, because it, you kind of start thinking that's how you know it's a village. There's a broken yeah. church or you know, that fallen cathedral or the one where you know they had the earthquake and it's yeah. got the piece of roof hanging overhead. I was really grateful to have that photograph of that church show up for the cover of Knowledge ah. and Dust. It was like such a find, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's such a bad, bad I, I'd loved, it, it's been in my bucket list. I get down to Mexico and go have a look at that building myself, you know. 
presumably it's still standing. Oh, they've had a couple of bad earthquakes there in the recent years, but I don't, I haven't heard of anything happening to that building. So what is going on with that? I mean, it's got to be by choice. It's not simply that he's seen them in each of these places, although he probably has, but he still chooses what's to include. He's also seen gas stations and all these other things that you can include in the text. But even when an author's basing everything on reality in terms of place and setting, there's still choice being made of what goes in and what is not. So what do you guys think is going on with all these run churches? Is it simply about loss of faith, loss of meaning? Uh, I don't know. What do you guys, how do you see that? Well, of course, literally town centers. I mean, like you said, I mean, this, this would be maybe the most evident structure, you know, ruined or not, right? Uh, in most of these places that um, these characters are going through. But you're, you're right. I mean, it invites, whether that's true or not, it invites, <laughs> it invites you know, deeper consideration, I suppose. I'm kind of thinking we just, we just had our McCarthy conference in Dublin, which was great. Um, we had a lot of really good papers there. And there was some really interesting discussion about Catholicism and one good paper about Catholicism and Blood Meridian. Uh, that's very hopefully going to be a journal submission in the near future. Paolo Vigano. Of course, we've talked a lot about you know McCarthy and Catholicism, and and Brian Gimza has done you know great work on Irish Catholic, the Irish Catholic tradition, and his Southern work. But this was pretty interesting. He talked about a number of scenes in the novel as mm-hmm. like failed sacraments, uh, and uh, figured them as failed mm. sacraments. And I had not, yeah, I had not really considered that particular angle, but thought that's not a context that screams out at me when I read Blood Meridian, but his reading was compelling. And in that sense, I mean, he talks, of course, about the baptism of James Robert that the judge does, which is a, a sorry, that first Sarah Borginus, Sarah Borginus, yeah, right, she takes him down, she cleans him up. And then when the judge rescues him, because he goes back to the water, and he's going to drown. And then the judge picks him up out of the water, like some holy retro, like failed baptismal candidate. Right. And so that I think Paolo was figuring as, well, here's a failed sacrament, right? It's, it's got all the elements of a sacrament, but it's a failure, which is of course an interpretation, but, but the, I think there's, I think he's right. There's probably more to be done with that idea of a structure, a religious or in, even just institutional structure that has cracked, right? Crumbled. But what do you do with those right. remains? Well, and it's it's certainly a symbol of Western expansion plowing its way through the Southwest. You think of those early stories of Spanish missionaries and how they're dealing with the fact that Native Americans did not make good slaves. And so some of those early Spanish church fathers are the ones who advocated uh, bringing in African slaves mm-hmm. to be better slaves and to free Native Americans from slavery. You think of just the idea that here's an ideology that the only way it's ever going to work is practicing what you preach. And there's very little you can see about the movement across the American Southwest that would make you think that's actually occurred here. Mm. So, Well, I think on that, on that, that idea of failed sacrament, mentioned that, that those ruined churches are not sanctuaries. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, the, the kid stumbles into the one where there were people slaughtered where the Indians mm, right. slaughtered people and just, piled the bodies up in the church and wrecked the church. So it didn't really do its job, which also uh, curiously suggests to me that many of the the big cathedrals and basilicas in Mexico were actually constructed deliberately on the sites of former Aztec, you know, Mesoamerican uh, temples. 
huh. as uh, very much along the lines of the way the friars and the and the monks who converted Ireland uh, incorporated Celtic deities into their pantheon of saints, uh, you know, as a way of appropriating the loyalty of the of the former pagans huh. in the area. Uh, that that big uh, that big cathedral in Mexico City where you see pilgrims walking on their knees uh, at Easter time. And I, I can't remember which one it is. Trying to Central Square. Yeah, it was actually built on the site of the Temple of Quatliqua, who was the Aztec uh, mother goddess, who's one of the bloodiest deities that ever existed. So, you know, there's a, there's a line there that runs, especially with the Mexican churches, uh, all the way back yeah, to that. Yeah, you know, Scott, I, I think, too, that it's almost ridiculously obvious to say that in this novel and elsewhere, McCarthy is iconoclastic. I mean, he's literally blasting what what we see when we see the ruined right. churches ruin uh, you know a, a christ with no head uh we see the icons themselves being sort of, yeah yeah quite literally more that, literally iconoclastic no question about that. That. <laughs> and um then of course what do you have left i mean one way to read the novel is is let's let's see it as 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 a portrayal of the church in its latter stages or in its final stage. But again, the, the question is, what do you have left? And, and then the, then we have this preternatural, preternatural resonance going on. Um, and it's almost post, post-religious and post-secular in the sense that we're in a place where metaphysics still is a question that we can, uh, we can engage but it's much more difficult and he's not going to comfort us with the idea of engaging it within an institutional or a formal or a a sort of conventional coherent context, right? That's being blasted out and we're left with his immediate need to, to ask the questions on our own. Well, true to our tradition on these panel episodes, this one's going a bit long, so we're going to break it off here and pick up with part two in the next episode. Thanks again to our panelists, Stephen Fry, Stacey Peebles, and Rick Wallach. Thanks, as always, to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced the music for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts we hope they'll someday see the light. Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy the Great American Novel Podcast hosted by myself and Kurt Kerna. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Despite the evening redness in the West, we're socially mediated on Twitter and Facebook. The website is readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the top of the webpage to buy the show a cappuccino, or you can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash readingmccarthy. Thanks again for listening. Thank all of you guys.